talking about why a tabernacle. And I just find it really interesting, don't you, that at this point in the history of the Israelite people that God wants to do this, actually. Because remember, as we kind of ended our time with the Israelites before we took our break, um, and if you just go back like a chapter or two in the Word, you're going to find that what what did the Israelites just do? They just built a golden calf and worshipped it because they were missing Moses for about 40 days. And they have just rejected God in probably the worst way possible. They rejected him entirely and started worshipping something else, just out of mostly out of their ignorance, but out of their fear and their doubt and their all of those same things that we do. And remember, just just after that, there you know God has them moving along in the wilderness, and He says, "Look, I'm going to walk like way ahead of you because if I walk with you, I'm killing all of you." I'm done with all of you. So I'm going to walk way up here so I don't do that. He's just said that to them. And then he gives Moses the plans for the tabernacle. So why a tabernacle? Why did he do that? Well, tabernacle means to meet, to dwell. The word tabernacle comes from the Latin word meaning tent. Translated literally a dwelling place. And remember, the, the tabernacle itself was meant to be a temporary building of sorts, a tent. It, it needed to go along with them. It needed to move around. So they needed to dissemble it and assemble it everywhere they went. It's not a permanent structure until Solomon, some 450 years in the future, it becomes a permanent structure for the dwelling place of God. But right now it needs to be, it's a tent. It's called the tent of meeting, a dwelling place, tabernacle. You're going to hear all of those terms as we study this. But God wanted to meet with these people up close and personal. And as Pastor Carol mentioned last week, all of the creation and the fall of mankind is captured in three chapters. But the tabernacle... 13 chapters of the Old Testament it takes to cover this very important juncture of God with his people. So if you look at creation and you look at the, the level of creativity and, and the, the hugeness of that project and then the creation of man and then our rejection of God for the first time, um, three chapters. This was intensely important to God, this meeting, this meeting together. And in Exodus 25, 9, it says, Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I'll show you. So when God came to dwell among his people again, it was a sign of the return of his favor. Now, the people had repented. They were feeling really bad. I mean, when he was saying, look, I'm walking way up there, they felt that. They felt the pull of his presence away from them so he was pleased that they had paid attention to the detail of the building of the tabernacle and in that they had both his pleasure and his reward his presence a holy god meets with a sinful people god wanted to meet with his people but how was god who is holy How is he going to meet with this stiff-necked, sinful, reject? How is he going to do it? 
Because remember, when Jesus was on the cross, and, and you heard him, when you read the words he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying that because he's carrying the sin of all of humanity on him, and God cannot look at him. He can't be near him. He can't look. And, God, and Jesus had never experienced a separation from God. So if God was doing that with his own son, whom he loved and he was pleased, and Jesus in himself carried no sin, but he was carrying ours on the cross, if he did that with his own son, how is he going to do that with these people? Let's read a few verses about God's holiness. So Exodus 3, 5, then he said, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. For Samuel 2, 2, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. First Chronicles 16, 10, glory in his name, his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. In Psalm 22, 3, yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned on the praises of Israel. God set up his throne and his dwelling place in the middle of these sinful people, and he did it in a way that was worthy of himself. His standard of judgment and his government, it had to be perfect. And that's how he set it up. The tabernacle itself was no more than just a dwelling place, but all the components of the tabernacle are an intricate, visual illustration of God's redemption of his people. And it required complete obedience. And as we go through this, you're going to read, we're going to hear of accounts of people who stepped slightly outside of this in disobedience and their lives were over. But you're also going to read about people who, who were trying to help or things were falling and they're trying to catch it. And boom, they touched things they weren't supposed to touch and they were gone. They were snuffed out. Absolute obedience was what God required here. So now we're going to get a little technical and a little academic. You ready for that? Transcendence and imminence. Transcendent means to go beyond ordinary limits, surpassing, exceeding, superior, or supreme, being beyond all the limits of all possible experience and knowledge transcending the universe and time. God is over and above all creation all the time, separate from it, and rules it. Genesis 14, Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. There is no one like you, God. You are high and lifted up. The world is dependent on him, all creatures here below, including us. Eminence. Remaining within, indwelling. Inherent. Indwelling the universe and time. Existing, operating, and remaining within. Closely related to God's omnipresence, God is everywhere, close and involved. He sees all at once and is everywhere present. 
Are you understanding the difference? So first, transcendent, we're talking about the vastness, the hugeness, the actually somewhat the disconnect from this little place that we live on because he is so far above us and so and yet he's also imminent he's personal he's intimate he's localized he's contained he's both of those things at once colossians 117 he is before all things and in him all things hold together if god were to remove his presence from the earth we all disintegrate it's all over he is what holds all of this together. He is who put the sun and moon in place and, cre- and, and they help control the tides, but it's not because of the sun and the moon. It's because of God's presence, and that's how he's designed it. So he's interconnected with all of it and yet separate and above it. It's kind of cool, isn't it? It's like trying to imagine him being always always before and, and existing forever and ever. It's, we have a tough time grasping these kinds of concepts. <clears throat> God's transcendence, his everywhere at once, and his imminence, his ability to localize, is the miracle of the tabernacle. Yes, God's name was there. His presence was there. So there was meeting but you wouldn't say that all of God resided in the Holy of Holies. He did localize there, but he was also at the same time transcendent. So yes, he, he did reside there. He did have presence among his people, but he was also still God and above all things. It's like trying to grasp the concept that Jesus Christ was all man and all God. And if we miss and somehow humanize Jesus too much, we, we miss his deity. So, in essence, his deity must be emphasized so that we don't take for granted his humanness. God's transcendence must be emphasized or we take for granted his localization, his ability to just be with us. We have to recognize both at once. Second Chronicles two six, but he who is able to build a house for who is able to build a house for him for the heavens, the highest heavens cannot contain him. I want you to look at Exodus forty verse thirty four, and then kind of turn to Leviticus one. They're kind of on maybe on your Bible like mine. They're on the opposing pages, so really close by. What you see. In Leviticus 40, 34 is God's presence filling the temple, entering the Holy of Holies. And then in Leviticus 1, just the next chapter of the Bible, you have the Lord calling to Moses, and he spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So if you can imagine being these people, the glory of God fills the temple, and the Lord filled the tabernacle. The Shekinah now made an, this is uh, one commentator's words, an awful entry into the tabernacle. I don't think he meant um, awful the way we often use it. I think he meant a awesome entrance. If you can imagine being these people and watching the presence of God 
begin to localize a place to meet with them. I, I can't even imagine what they saw. Because remember, Moses asked to see God's glory once. He asked to see his Shekinah. And what did God say to him? You can't. You can't see it because if you did, you would die. So what he does is he hides Moses in the cleft of some rocks. And then as he's passing by, he just passes his back to him. And even then, when Moses then went down to where the Israelites were off the mountain, his face was still glowing so much that it scared the people to death. So if you can imagine what it was like for them now to see God himself, not just the backside of him, but God himself come in through the temple and take up residence in the Holy of Holies. We read about it, but I don't think we can understand what that must have been like for them. And yet they still had trouble following him. Um, God's Shekinah is his visible glory, and the Shekinah made itself visible. It was described as Wesley as, so dreadful was the fire that Moses was not able to enter into the tent of congregation, at the door of which he attended, till the splendor was a little abated and the glory of the Lord retired within the veil. So Moses watched, but he couldn't even go in himself until God's presence was all the way behind the curtain and into the Holy of Holies. He couldn't even enter the tabernacle himself, and the tabernacle was filled. The tabernacle of God is with man. So God dwelled among his people in the tabernacle in the wilderness, and he appeared as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So the people would follow him. They would pack up the tent the way that it was prescribed, and then they would move on as the pillar of the cloud led them. And then they would camp, and the pillar of fire would set itself up at night. And they wouldn't go on a journey unless that cloud went before them. They wouldn't do it. The New Testament writes, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That's John 1.14. God came in living flesh to dwell or to tabernacle with us. He walked on the earth and he lived among us, Christ himself, was a picture of the Old Testament tabernacle. The tabernacle really was a prophetic projection of the Lord's redemptive plan for his people. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. The symbolism can't be missed. God wanted to dwell among his people. He wanted an up, close, and personal relationship with them. So he had them construct a place, sorry, <coughs> in a very precise manner, the tabernacle. And God sent his son to live among us. Thank you so much. Because at that point, it was even more personal, 
more up close because Jesus wanted to live here in us, take up residence and dwell with us. It wasn't just with the people in a localized place. Now God wanted residence here in us. And as we speak, God is in heaven preparing a dwelling place for us so that in eternity we get to dwell with him. And this symbolism is set up from the very beginning to the very end that this vast, huge, amazing God intends to dwell with his people, a sinful people who are always rejecting and always missing the mark and mostly ignorant of his word and ignorant of his commands and his statutes. He intends to dwell with those people, with us. And he's done it in the most magnificent way one can imagine. Not only through setting up the the tabernacle in the way that he did, and then later the temple, but in the body of his own son, having him be the full and total sacrifice for our sin, so that we no longer needed a place to go, a tabernacle to go to deal with our sin. We could do that within our own lives, within our own heart. Are, are you taking in how people who talk about religion and they talk about other gods and wanting to find themselves and, you know, what other terms that they use, no one, no one, no God that they talk of, gods with little g's, no God that anyone speaks of has chosen to dwell with people has sacrificed so much to make it possible for us to have an intimate, personal relationship with God. Only the God of all gods, only the I am, has done such a thing. So if someone were to ask you after today, why a tabernacle? Why... Why was God so intent on making this tent? And why was it so specific in all the stuff and the blood and the sacrifices and blah? What are you going to say? The tabernacle was a way for a holy God to meet with a sinful people. But we can't just presume to just walk into the holy of holies. We have to do it in a prescribed way. All roads do not lead to God. And you're going to be hearing this more and more and more as time marches on. Even the Pope stood with people of other religions and said out loud, all roads lead to God. All roads do not lead to God. There is only one road to God and it goes right through the cross. And unless you accept the gift of salvation that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his blood shed on the cross. There is no God for you. There is no eternity. And don't you let anyone talk you out of how precious it is that your God chooses to be with you 
and doesn't make it impossible for you to reach him. Because without Jesus, I'm telling you right now, it is. It is impossible. But God has done everything he can do, and he's so clear about how to get there. He's done everything that is needed and possible for you to meet with a holy God. Lord Jesus, we are astounded and awed, Lord, by the message in, your, in the entire breadth of the word that your whole point was to meet with us so that we could know you. Your whole point was to love us so much that you sacrificed your, your only son on the cross for us that we might know a holy God and our sins be forgiven so that we could meet you. We are in awe of your presence, Lord, right here in this room. And we are so thankful that you're not just imminent in this room, but that you are transcendent over and above all things. And we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.